You're listening to the teaching of Calvary Paris. For more information, go to www.calvaryparis.com. So we're in Malachi, the book of Malachi, making our way through. The series is titled My Messenger. And this morning, we are beginning the second dispute of the book. There are six total, and you can see that there in your outline if you'll grab your study guide. It's got an outline there with some fill-in-the-blanks, and you can follow along as we go through. There was a young man, a very successful young man, who said this. He said, the greatest gift I ever received was a gift I got one Christmas when my dad gave me a small box, and inside was a note saying, son, this year... I will give you 365 hours, an hour every day after dinner. It's yours. We'll talk about what you want to talk about. We'll go where you want to go. We'll play what you want to play. It will be your hour. The young man said, my dad not only kept this promise, but every year he renewed it, and it's the greatest gift I've ever had. I am the result of my father's time. And this is what we're looking at today is the subject of fatherhood in the book of Malachi. As we recognize and realize that our God desires to be a father in our lives. And he's willing not, to, not only to give you an hour of his day. But he'll give you as much time as you're willing to connect with him, to be connected with him. Now last week in our study, we saw how God opened his message to his people with an affirmation of his love. They were doubting his love and he wanted to affirm them in that love. He wanted them to clearly note all of the blessings that came as a part of his covenant love, his election by grace. And this week... Continuing in the same vein, the heart of the Lord, he wants to affirm his relationship as father, as our father, but not only as our father, as our Lord and as a king. And that is what we see in this passage. God is affirming those three relationships to us, father, Lord, and king. All of these relationships point to one thing, and that's God's great love for you and for me, for his people. His love is the background of every other part of his message for his people. And it is out of his love that God confronts the Israelites in the book of Malachi to show them that their hearts have strayed from him. See, our God is a jealous God. And when other things get in the way of the relationship that he has with us, Oh, it, it, it bothers him, and, and he must confront. He, out of love, will confront. And that's what he's doing through his messenger, Malachi. Now, as we continue in our study of the book, we come now, as I said today, to the second of the six disputes. The first dispute that we covered last week was that the people were doubting God's love. The second dispute is that they are dishonoring God's name. Now, we'll see in our text this morning that God's name is connected to the worship that is being offered. Did you know that? That when you come on a Sunday or a Wednesday or on your daily basis, 
before the Lord, your worship to the Lord, it's directly connected to the heart and mind of every individual that is worshiping. You see, God's name can be dishonored when worship comes from individuals who don't really care about God. In other words, when our worship doesn't come from a heart that wants to honor and and reverence our God, then it stinks. The other day I was playing a game, a pass and play game on my laptop computer with my kids and we're all sitting around the table in this one tight spot, you know, because you got the laptop and, you know, instead of board games, we do it all on laptops today and you pass and play. And suddenly we smelled something very stinky. And I said, what, what is that? And my seven-year-old son went, <laughs> you know, that was me, dad, you know, real proud of it, you know. And I'm thinking, what is wrong with this kid? He's proud of the stench, you know, that... Maybe it's a guy thing. I don't know, but we just we get like that sometimes. But, 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 but sometimes our worship can stink. And, and God, our Father, he just looks at us and he's like, you guys don't get it, do you? That's what I want us to realize today. That's what I hope that we will, will get from this today is that God wants this relationship with you and me. He's our Father. He's our Lord and King. And as such, he deserves honor. He deserves reverence from you and me, coming from a heart of love. Now, our first point comes there in verse 6, where we see that God's name was being despised. So this dispute, much like the first one, uh, in verses 1 through 5, this one has a form to it, as you will see, and it begins with God's accusation. Okay, God's accusation, if you're filling in the blanks there. Read 6a with me from the Bible, Malachi 1, verse 6. The first part says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then am a father, where's my honor? And if I'm a master, where's my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. Now when it says fear, when God says, where's my fear, we're not talking about an unhealthy kind of fear here. But this kind of fear, it's a, it's a respectful, reverential type of a fear. It's the idea that you get when you have a, a good dad who, you know, is not afraid to uh, make sure that you're walking in, in, in the right orderly way. You know, you got a dad that is not afraid to discipline you when you're, dis- when you're straying from his will. That's the kind of idea here is that we, we, God wants us to realize, okay, he's a dad that loves me and he loves me enough to confront me when I get out of line. That's what the fear here means. It's not an unhealthy fear. It's a a healthy respect. It's a healthy reverence for our Father, the one that brought us into the world. Now Malachi, who's God's messenger, he he starts off this second dispute so good. He, He begins by winning the people over by using this argument that they can all understand. Most of the people and the priests would have children. And all of the people and all of the priests would definitely know the fifth commandment there in Israel, which was honor your father and your mother as the Lord your God commanded you. Honor your father and your mother. The people and the priests knew that they not only desired their own children would love them and honor them, but they also demanded that their children would show them honor. Malachi also uses the analogy here of a servant and his master. The people were very familiar with that as well. This concept of relationship 
between a master and a servant. You know, in the era of, era of history in which they lived when this book was written, slavery was just a part of life, you guys. It was a natural part of their everyday lives, so they understood this analogy easily. A servant honored his master. Why? Because he belonged to him by right of purchase. He had no other option but to obey, otherwise it would go badly for him. Both of these analogies are rooted deeply in the history of Israel, and especially the concept of God being a father figure to to Israel. For example, let's explore some of these passages for a moment. Moses, he declared that God was the father of Israel who had created them. Check this out. In Deuteronomy 32 and 6, uh, it, it says this, Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you, and established you? I love that order there. God not only has created us, God has made us who we are, and God is establishing us in this life. Also, the prophet Isaiah revealed the same relationship in Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 2. He said, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Do you hear his heart in that verse? The, heart of, the broken heart of a father, a parent, whose children have rebelled against them and, and are turning and going their own way. And then also, and then this is about 200 years before Malachi, the, uh, the other prophet Hosea. He said this in Hosea chapter 11, verses 1 and 2. He said, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to idols. You sense the heart of love, the broken heart of love that God has for a child that is erring in his ways there. You see, in a sense, all of us are God's children, and all of us have been called to come out of Egypt. Egypt in the Old Testament is a, uh, a metaphor, a type, if you will, of belonging to the world. Belonging to the world system. But you see, God, as a loving father, he comes and he calls. And he calls us out. He saves us out of Egypt. Malachi is basically telling us that the real problem here, the heart of the problem, is a heart problem. Isn't that so often the case? You know, as a parent with four children myself, you know, I find that the issues I deal with are... are, Usually symptoms of one thing, it's a heart that's out of whack. It's a heart that's out of order with the Lord. And so rather than, you know, deal with the symptom all day long, I'd rather take five minutes of my day to sit down with that child and to say, hey, son, listen, daughter, something's not right with your heart with the Lord. So let's take a minute. You've got a hard heart here. You're hating your brother. You're hating your sister in your heart. And we need to deal with that issue. So let's pray. Let's confess sin. Let's talk to Jesus. Let's talk to the Lord about what's happening because it's a heart problem. Same thing is true in my marriage relationship. When things are going wrong in my marriage with my wife, you know what it is? It's, it's somebody's out of whack. And it's usually me. True confessions. It's usually me. I'm the one that has to go, yeah, yeah, I need to go sit down and I need to get with the Lord. I need to spend some time, I need to humble myself, I need to submit to God. 
See, things will not be right in life, just as they were not right for the Israelites. They won't be right in life chiefly because the people of God were, number one, doubting his love for him, for them. And then, secondly, they've forgotten that he was a loving father as well as a loving Lord. However, in spite of the clarity of God's accusation, the people dispute his accusation. That's our second sub-point. The people dispute his accusation. And you see that in verse 6b, Malachi 1.6b, the last part that we didn't read says, But you say, how have we despised your name? Why are they disputing the Lord's claim that they, have, or that they aren't showing him honor and reverence? I'll tell you why. Because often people are not even aware of the fact that they're actually doing something wrong. Interestingly enough, I can identify with these people because I often don't realize my own attitude of mind. My mindset can be hidden from me. My own heart tricks me, it deceives me into believing, hey, I'm not doing anything really wrong here. And, and then to add to that, I'm an excellent justifier. See, I can look at all of you and I can go, hmm, see, I'm, I'm better than that person over there. Well, at least I'm not doing that. And I'm not pointing at anybody in particular here. If, you, if my finger went your way, <laughs> don't take offense this morning. But aren't we good? Aren't all of us good at just finding a, a little sliver of justification? Oh, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so. And we kind of secretly delight when somebody, you know, is in trouble. Oh, <laughs> poor person. I'm really glad that happened to them and not me, right? And, and we have all these little ways, all these nuances of how we conveniently ignore the truth about our own lives. It's true that we often live in a state of ignorance when it comes to the inner attitudes of our own hearts. But those inner attitudes, you know what, they sooner or later, they come out in our behavior, don't they? Did you know that when a person is guilty or they're ashamed that toxic kind of shame, it will sooner or later come out. You know, I can remember a time in my life I truly believed I was a loser because I believed the lie, the condemnation of Satan in my life that I was a loser and I would never be victorious. And so I began to believe that, you know, I'm just a loser. I'm tainted goods, man. I got problems. But that's where the truth of the gospel invaded my heart and my life and changed that outlook. Changed it from the inside, from the very core of my being. That's what the gospel does. But, but those, that, that guilt, that shame, it came out in the sense that, you know, I just thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm a guilty, I'm ashamed of my conduct. You know, I'm just going to continue to sin. I'm just going to continue to fall into this and continue not to have victory. And that's oftentimes how that behavior, that inner behavior comes out. Uh, another way that that has come out in my own life as a pastor is, and, and uh, this, is, this is something that's kind of, <laughs> I guess, relevant or relegated to those that are in ministry, but I always save all my old sermons because it's an um, exercise in humility for me to go back and to read over those old sermons. I will go back and uh, there's one that is always in my mind. It's absolutely the worst message I have ever given in my life. Every time I read it, you guys, I cringe in embarrassment. Because, and here's the reason, because I talked more about myself than God or the Bible or anything else in this sermon. 
And when I read it, I cringe. Because you know what was happening? The pride, the pridefulness of my own heart was just eking and oozing out in this message. And it shows me what I really thought about myself. Now, thankfully, ministry is not easy. God has definitely humbled me since then. I still have that pride. It still oozes out. You, you guys see it from time to time. But listen, that's an, at, that's an at inner attitude that was coming out in my sermons. What, what, about, uh, what about in, in my marriage relationship? Another way that this comes out. You know, when Rebecca comes to me and she's hurting, my wife, and she'll share something with me that she's hurting, what's the first thing I think about? I think about, well, what did I do to contribute to that hurt? You know, and, and how can I justify myself and show her that I wasn't really wrong, you know? That's the first thing. Instead of having a heart of compassion to step out of myself and to say, wow, I'm sorry that you feel that way, honey. You know, the first thing I think of is myself. And so there's a lot of ways that these inner attitudes, we're ignorant of them. We think, oh, we're fine. We're doing just fine. But God says, no, you know, this has got to change. Here's another example of an inner attitude that's often exemplified in the behavior of Christians in in the church. And I'd like to share this quote from the late preacher, Dr. James Kennedy. He says, most people think of the church as a drama. Dr. James Kennedy said, with the minister as the chief actor, God as the prompter, and the laity as the critic. What is actually the case is that the congregation is the chief actor. The minister is the prompter and God is the critic. This inner attitude, you see, that the minister is the chief actor, God's the prompter, and the congregation is the critic, that can be seen in today's church through the lack of Christian service within the body of a church and through the lack of Christian living within the community where God has sent us to be. We forget it's our job to be the actors. And we come to church with criticism and judgment in our hearts. But it's actually God who is the critic. God, in his love, seeks to confront you and me and expose these inner attitudes in us by pointing out our wrong behavior. But he does it in such a loving way. (laughs) He does it in a way that's unlike perhaps the way a human being would do it because he's perfect. He seeks to restore you and me to him. See what he does next? The, the, the next subpoint there, God responds in verses 7 through 10. And we read this. It says, by offering polluted food on my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now, entreat the favor of God. This is an iron. He's using irony here in verse 9. And now entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us with such a gift from your hand. Will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were among you who would shut the doors, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. In other words, shut it down. (laughs) If you're going to be fake, shut it down. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. So, first of all, they're polluting his worship. They're polluting his worship, if you're following along in your outline. 
how were the people polluting his worship? Well, they were polluting worship by bringing in these blind, sick, and lame animals. This action was rooted in an evil attitude, according to verse 8. And not only that, it was forbidden by the law in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the the Torah, the, 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 the books of the law. And God actually challenges the people here with this situation. He says, hey, try presenting that stuff to your governor, why don't you? Let's give it a little perspective here, guys. Now, imagine that you had an opportunity to bring your gift. Maybe you're a 4-H guy or girl, and you get called into President Trump's office. And he wants to see your show animal. And you bring in a goat that's blind, you know. You set the thing down and it walks into the fireplace, you know. (laughs) He's like, what's the deal with that? Or you bring in this nice goat, you know, and it's got like cysts on it, you know, and flies, you know, flying around. You set it down and he's like, what's that smell, you know. I mean, how do you think President Trump is going to react to that? He's like, what are you doing? What are you doing bringing that in here, you know? We wouldn't ever think to do that. That governor would look at you, he would look at the animal, and then he would look at you. And he would be thinking, how dare you bring that thing to me? Who do you think I am? That's an outward behavior, isn't it? But it speaks of the inner problem of their heart. Again, what is that problem? The relationship is missing. Okay, they've taken God and they have isolated him as an, a, you know, just a, an entity that is not intimate, that is not personal. The relationship is gone. They're forgetting he's their father and the reverence is gone. They're forgetting that God is, a, is their Lord. So not only are they polluting this worship, but also they're despising his name. They're despising his name. In verse 9, there's an example there of irony. The prophet Malachi is using irony. He says, you guys actually want God to bless you? Show you favor with these kinds of things that you're presenting? These kinds of behaviors and attitudes? No way, right? This is a problem. They're despising and dishonoring God with this kind of an attitude. Now look at verse 10 again with me. God is challenging someone to actually shut the doors of the temple. Again, he says, just shut it down, guys. I would rather that you didn't come and offer this kind of worship if this is what you're going to do. Heavy, heavy stuff. In contrast to their behavior, God tells them, and, and, and this is our second point, that God's name will be great among the nations. Look, you might despise his name, but it doesn't matter what you think because ultimately God's name is great. Look at verses 11 through four. Now, in, in 14. Now, in these verses, Malachi goes from one form of prophecy to another form of prophecy. It's both prophecy, uh, and, and you'll see it in two different ways. There's, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but if you're a Bible student, you probably know this. That, that word prophecy can be used in two senses. The first sense is a foretelling. It's a declaration. It's a proclamation of God's word. That's a prophetic word. Okay, in that sense, the gift of prophecy is used often here at Calvary Chapel Paris on a Sunday morning. When I'm preaching to you in the, in the authority of the Lord as God's mouthpiece, I say things sometimes with the authority, not my authority, but God's authority to you. And it's a, it's a, it's a powerful, dynamic, forth-telling. There's a forth-telling of God's word. This is God's word for you. But there's also a second part of prophecy that is a foretelling. 
So you got foretelling, but then there's foretelling, and that's divinely inspired prediction of future events. And we see both of that in verse 11. He's making both a declaration and a prediction at the same time. Check it out. He says, um, from, the, for from the rising of the sun to the setting, to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So what's he talking about? He's talking about pure worship here. He's talking about a pure form of worship that's going to come in the future. And he states very clearly for us there that the the foretelling part is that it's seen in those words, will be. Okay, Malachi is predicting a future time here when worship to God will be taking place in spirit and in truth all over the world. You see, the sacrificial system was insufficient to be uh, uh, pure all the time. At best, it covered the sins of people, but it could not cleanse and change people's hearts. And so that's where Jesus Christ had to step into the picture. And that's what this is. This is a prophecy. This is a future prediction that's even now being fulfilled when Christian church comes and worships God all around the world as we love our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's pure worship. Pure worship can only be offered through Jesus Christ. And so today, when we come, as we come in faith to Christ, we offer pure worship. Now, the last part of chapter 1 closes with a contrast to the pure worship of the future. When the sacrificial system has been fulfilled in Christ, Malachi now exposes the profane worship in verses 12 through 14. Read with me. He says, but you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit, that is its food, may be despised. But you say, what weariness is this? And you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. In other words, they're bored. They're despising. You bring what's been taken by violence or is sick or lame. Or is lame or sick, I'm sorry. And you bring that as your offering. So what that means, that which is taken by violence, what they would do is, you know, they would wait for an animal to kill one of their sacrificial animals. So let's say a coyote or a wolf or a lion. And they would go, eh, let's take that one in for the sacrifice, you know. So they'd bring in a dead animal that had been killed by, you know, uh, by violence. That's what they were uh, offering to the Lord. In verse 14, or he goes on, he says, shall I accept that from your hand? Says the Lord. Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it and yet sacrifices to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. He's talking about faith, unfaithfulness on behalf of the people to follow through with their promises. It's a challenge, guys. He raises the situation here where a person is asking God for favor. And God bestows that favor. And, and, and so he says, okay, I'm going to sacrifice my firstborn male goat. My firstborn male sheep to the Lord and, and that was God's right, according to the, the Torah. But when the time came to actually follow through on that promise and to take those firstborn animals and present them to the Lord, the best of what they had, they were like, eh, let's find something else. Let's grab this sick animal here. Let's grab this one that's blemished over here. 
And so they were doing that, and it was hugely disrespectful. It's what I would call leftover worship. You know, leftovers are okay, aren't they? We all have leftovers at home in the refrigerator. It's never as good the second time around, is it? Man, that meal, when you first eat it, it's hot, it's good, it's fresh. But then you stick it in those little Tupperware containers and you hopefully you squeeze the air out of it and you stick it in the fridge. And that's what you eat the next night. And you know that when you come home, you're, you're not thinking, yeah, all right, leftovers. You know, you're thinking, all right, you know, got to save some money here. You know, <laughs> let's be economical. Let's make sure we don't waste it. Let's leftovers. Leftover worship, guys. I've got a quote for you from a 20th century Christian. Since I know there's no 21st century Christians that do this. But it says, you see God, it's like this. We could attend church more faithfully if your day came at some other time. You've chosen a day that comes at the end of a hard week and we're all tired out. Not only that, but it's the day following Saturday night. And Saturday night is the one time that when we feel we should go out and enjoy ourselves. Often it's after midnight when we reach home and it's almost impossible to get up on Sunday morning. And you must realize that you've picked up, you've picked the very day on which the morning paper takes the longest to read. The day when the biggest meal of the week must be prepared. We'd like to go to church and we know that we should. But you have just chosen the wrong day. Leftover worship. It's leftovers. You know, I can't tell you, as a pastor, how many conversations I have with people. I, I mean, I just, I hear the same excuses, and I'm not trying to be mean, I'm not trying to be ugly, this is just a reality for me as a pastor. But if I grow weary of hearing the same excuses for why people can't make it to church, how do you think your true father in heaven feels about that. Well, Malachi is telling us. You know, that's the great thing about the word of God. It doesn't, doesn't mince words. He cuts straight to the chase. What is he trying to drive home, though, to you and to me this morning? He's not saying, be at church. Make church your priority. That's not the point of Malachi, guys. It's the relationship. What's God trying to drive home to you and to me this morning? He's our God. He's our Father. He's our great King. Now until we realize that those are true titles and roles that God has in our lives, listen, then life is not going to be what it should be and what it is meant to be. So I ask you this morning, is your life just not working out? Are you experiencing frustration? Are you looking around you and just going, man, this is not the way it's supposed to be. And you're sensing that and you know it. Hey, there's probably something off in one of these three relationships with your father, with your master, and with your great king. Do you need a renewal in your relationship with God today? As father... As your father, God deserves honor and love. And he desires relationship. He desires that with all of his heart. 
You see, 1 John chapter 3, verse 1 says this, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. Maybe you're a prodigal son or daughter today. Know this. The Father's heart is that you would come home. That you would return to him. That you would say, God, I I love and trust you and I'm, I'm coming back to you. I'm coming back to that relationship. You're my daddy. Have you forgotten that he loves you and desires to be your father? Maybe you need to be renewed this morning in your relationship with God as your master. You're living in a sinful relationship. You're living in a sinful situation. You're living a life that's dominated by sin. And this morning you need to recognize that, hey, you've been bought with a price. You have a master. He's your Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 and 20 says, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you're not your own? Quit fooling yourself. Don't be thinking you can just live the way you want to as a Christian. You're not your own. Jesus Christ bought you with his blood. That's what verse 20 says. You were bought at a price. Therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You're struggling with sin. You're struggling with being an overcomer. You've settled for a sinful situation that is less than God's will for your life. And you're just thinking, you know what? I'm a loser. This is the way it's got to be. Listen, no, you're not. You are not a loser. God loves you enough that he spent the most precious commodity he could ever have, his own son. Think about that for a moment. What that took for the father to allow that to happen to his son, Jesus, on the cross. I don't understand it. I know I couldn't stand idly by while my son was killed. But that's what it took to buy you back from death and from sin. You are precious in the Lord's sight. He loves you. And he desires that you would live in relationship to him, but you've got to see him as Lord. Are you playing around with that relationship today? Or do you need to be renewed today with the great king? In your relationship with God as a great king. Jesus Christ is a great king. Check out Revelation chapter 1 with me. Revelation chapter 1 verses 12 through 18. The apostle John writes, Then I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were, like, were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass, as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword. And his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And when I saw him, check this out, I fell at his feet as dead. 
But he laid his right hand on me saying, don't be afraid. I'm the first and the last. I am he who lives and was dead. And behold, I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I have the keys of Hades and death. That's a great king right there, you guys. Amen. Yeah. He is a great king who holds the keys of death and hell. There is not one that will not bow the knee before that king one day and say, you are Lord. And so we have an option today to do that willingly. Our God is a great and mighty king. Jesus will be coming back, not as a humble servant, but as a humble yet mighty king. Have you forgotten that he is a great and mighty king who rules over all? What's the application? That, that he deserves our best, guys. He deserves the absolute best that we can give to him. In our lives, in our jobs, you know, in our workplace, but, but more than that, in, in, in our families, in our relationships, interpersonally, in the church, with him. As such, he deserves that. So if you don't know him, Today is your opportunity for salvation to come to your heart and to your home. By acknowledging that God is your Father who created you, made you, and established you. He's also your Lord who paid the ultimate highest price for your life and loves you. But you're not your own. And you need to acknowledge that He is also the King. If you will do that today, God promises to restore your life, to give you his life. But you have to make that commitment in your heart today before the Lord. So let's do that now. Let's pray.